Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs. And I'm Cody Sims. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. We appreciate you tuning in, sharing this episode, and if you feel like it, leaving us a review to help more people find out about us so they can figure out where they fit in addressing the problem of climate change. Today's guest is Alejandro Carrillo, a rancher who lives in El Paso, Texas, and stewards his family's ranch four hours south in the Mexican Chihuahuan Desert. We were introduced to Alejandro via Russ Concert of Blue Nest Beef, who's a member of the community. Russ introduced us to Alejandro because we were putting together this mini-series to hear the perspectives of the skilled labor workforce, the ranchers, the electricians, the HVAC technicians, the farmers, the women and men on the front lines of rewiring our infrastructure in the face of climate change. After his successful career as an IT consultant, Alejandro joined his family ranch back in 2004. Tired of the constant drought and suffering that came with traditional ranching in desert climate, he'd been searching for ways to adapt and rehabilitate his family's land. Since 2006, he adapted the principles of holistic plant grazing, or regenerative ranching, as we'll learn about. Alejandro is also the president of Pasticultores del Desierto, a nonprofit organization with a goal to provide ongoing education for cattle ranchers, as well as promote holistic plant grazing across the world's deserts. This was such a fascinating and meandering conversation where we talk about why dung beetles are so important to the ranch, to the epigenetics of cows, to the differences between Mexican and American agriculture policies and their effects on ranching, and a whole lot more. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And with that, Alejandro, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for the opportunity to share this great information that we are going to be sharing today. I am so excited to learn from you. And to start, you have such a fascinating background. You graduated from Johns Hopkins. You had a career as an IT consultant for a number of years, and then you became a rancher. Just tell us a little bit more about yourself. When I was a kid, I used to go to the ranch in summers, and I really loved the land. I really loved the soil, the cattle, the wildlife. And is this your family ranch that you yes, used to? Yes. Okay, got it. Did you grow up on a ranch or no, did you visit? I grew up in a city. My dad was a banker. We also got the ranch. We loved to go hunting mostly, but also as a kid, you wanted to be a cowboy and you hang out with the cowboys and do all these chores. So that was pretty exciting. What city did you grow up in and where was the ranch? Mostly northern Mexico in multiple cities because my dad moved multiple times trying to get better opportunities to grow, but mostly in Chihuahua, the state of Chihuahua in northern Mexico. Pretty much it's a more arid area, like more desert. So I'm really used to the desert. So at some point, there was a time to decide what to study. And then I told my dad in college, like, so should I study something related to animal science? And he said, no, no, I think you should study something else. So, you know, I was curious about the computers. So I said, well, let's see what is inside those computers. And that's how I ended up studying computer science in Mexico. And then I worked for 15 years in Mexico and the U.S. And I was always waiting for the opportunity to go back to the ranch. So when my dad turned 70, he said, why don't you go back and help me at the ranch? And I said, yeah, let's do it. I knew at some point I would join the ranch. 
The point is that when I joined the ranch, I really did not want to do like very conventional cattle ranching. I really wanted to do something different because there's a lot of suffering when you do conventional ranching because you're always like in this drought mode every year. And it's not really fun, much less if you are the owner. You make a profit one year and then the next two years you lose that profit. So I really wanted to find something that would be different, that would give us some consistency in terms of the business and also something that you could work with nature because, you know, I love nature. So I was very fortunate to have these mentors, really very seasonal folks practicing holistic management in the state of Chihuahua, Mexico. I mean, I was blessed because they knew a lot. And I took my first holistic management training back in 2006. And then the beauty of this is that then I have access to these folks since 2008 saying, hey, how do you do this? How do you do that? So that's what we always emphasize that we need to build a community because we by themselves, we will not be able to go far on this. I mean, you're pretty much isolated in the branch and you want to actually not only ask questions, but share the excitement of things that are coming based on the new kind of management. Can't wait to get into all the exciting things that are currently being practiced and on the horizon. Before we get there, I'd love to just learn a little bit more about the ranch. Sounds like your family ranch that your family had stewarded for years that your dad, when he was 70, passed on to you. What's the name of the ranch? Where is it located? How big is it? Maybe if you can talk a bit about you growing up and what are the memories that you have of being on that ranch? I really love riding and love looking at the cows and love those rainy seasons when everything just flourish. And, you know, I was really able also to deal with the hot weathers, the cold weathers and so on. So the name of our ranch is Las Damas, which in English is called The Ladies. Why The Ladies? Well, it goes beyond having three daughters. <laughs> that name has been there for the early 1800s, actually. It was originally a mining town. So if you see the old mines, at least Spanish names, they all have female names. So there were so many mines across our mountain range, so many females, that they decided to call that Sierra or that mountain range, the ladies mountain range or Las Amas. So we still have a lot of those old buildings and a lot of those shafts and at the ranch, these little cars that they used to carry material and all that stuff. So it's been there for a while, actually. And I don't know if you know this, but miners used to raise cattle, not actually because they wanted to be in the business, because they used the leather to carry whatever they're getting from the, I mean, to actually build these leather bags. And they carry all the material through mules on that. You know, at that time, there were no engines or anything like that. And also for meat. So there were some cattle since then at the ranch. And Actually, the ranch is located in the Chihuahuan Desert, which is the largest desert of North America and probably the more diverse desert of North America. So we actually got a very low precipitation. Our average precipitation is nine inches or about, let's say, 220 millimeters. So you really have to find a way to find that resilience in your ranch. Because for me, the beauty of doing this cattle business is as you have that beautiful machine, which is a cow, or it could be actually horses, donkeys, sheep, goats, where they can actually 
sell, fertilize, and actually grow their own grass. For me, it's very important to be able to close the gates and see, okay, what else do I need to be self-sufficient here? Got it. For me, as someone who doesn't know very much about ranching at all, I think about farming, and I think of agriculture, and I think about ranching, and I'm asking myself, like, what's the difference between farming and ranching? So at a most basic level, can you talk about the maybe similarities and differences in those two practices? I think at some point in time, ranchers were also farmers. Ranchers raise livestock, and farmers actually grow crops. And I remember on my parents' time, they actually were for farmers and ranchers. And then we ended up just being ranchers at the ranch. Because remember, we're in a very arid environment. Even if you want to grow a crop without some kind of irrigation, it will be very risk because there's very low precipitation. So there's actually some lands are more prone to raise livestock, which is, I think, is my ranch. So we don't really grow any crop. We are relying on the native grass that we grow and we care for based on our management and for the cows to go year-round using those native grasslands. Got it. And then when, when you say cattle and land size, are we talking about like a couple of acres? Is there a definition for like what is a ranch? Like is there a minimum amount of land that you need and some type of like volume of cattle? That's not necessarily to have like a limit on the number of cattle. You can have two cows, one cow and one hectare or acre. In the case of our context, we actually have large ranches because they're pre-arid area, very brittle environments. So our particular ranch is 20,000 acre ranch, which is Did like- you say 30,000? Oh 30,000, yeah. Wow. So it's pretty large ranch though. I mean, I feel that sometimes I don't even know the whole ranch because it has a big mountain range in the middle. So even if you ride it, forget about walking the ranch. If you ride the ranch, it's hard to know the whole ranch. And you usually stay where the cattle is, where the cows are. Just for you to know, we have, what we're trying to do at the ranch is just mimic nature. We feel that we will do much better if we actually biomimicry, if we do mimic nature. And that means that in our area, in Northern Mexico, actually there were bison, there were elk, we still have pronghorn or antelope and all those creatures that go all the way from Canada all the way to northern Mexico. And what we're trying to mimic is those great migrations where these big migrations are deer, bison, antelope. They work the land and they keep moving. I mean, I think we need to think about moving the cattle as a way to improve the grasslands. Maybe they were moved based on the weather or things like that, or the rains as well, because they were always looking for the green stuff. But because we don't have really the conditions that we used to have before, we have to rely on certain technology, like electric fans, wells, I mean, water wells, and also water pipeline. We are able to move the cows every day to a new paddock or new pasture. Like you're giving the cows a new plate every day, like a new salad a fresh salad so you're leaving behind all the manure all the urine all these remember that the cows have eight tools to help us regenerate the grasslands kind of cheating here because the first four are the hooves that hooves <laughs> that break the hard pan those are really important and then you also have the saliva effect 
if we cut the grass with scissors and you let the cow cut the grass with their mouth, that grass that was cut by the cow will grow faster because of the saliva effect. Fascinating. Yeah, it's all this exchange of microbiology. Microbiology goes back and forward. And then the urine has a lot of fertility. The manure is amazing, the manure. I mean, it's a lot of carbon in the manure. And if you allow the dumb beetles, for example, these dumb beetle creatures to work your cow pie, it's incredible. I mean, they will put most of the cow pie into the soil, while also they will be moving a lot of ground. And even the cow breathing, the breathing that it takes place when they're grazing, that also helps grow more grass. So there's a lot of, this is incredible machine, it's a bioreactor. The cow, you can say that it's a bioreactor machine. And not only the cow, but I mean, you're talking about the sheep, the goat. We have at the ranch one mob or one herd that is comprised of cows mainly, but also horses, also donkeys, sheep, and goats. Do all those animals get herded together? Or are they all on different rotational schedules? Horses, donkeys, and cows, they're on the same paddock. And sheep and goats go around the same area. So why are we doing that? Because you don't want your animals to stay on the same area because they will end up overgrazing certain plants and overresting other plants. So some people really believe, people actually living in a less brittle environments like more rainy, they always think, oh, we need to get rid of the cows because they are destroying the environment. But we need to start with how the grasses evolve and they really need to be eaten. They really need to be worked for them to thrive. If you remove all the cows from all these places, then you will see desertification taking place. I mean, there are more than one way for us to desertify a place. One is continuous grazing where you never move the cows. That's not natural. So they will be overgrazing some plants and overesting others. So they will die. And the other is removing all the cows. Even having very few cows in a place will actually desertify the place as well. I think it was you who told me this when we chatted the first time. If you just like search for pictures of the Chihuahuan Desert like 100 years ago or the first pictures taken of the Chihuahuan Desert to what it looks like now, it's completely different. There was grassy oh. fields, and now it is desert unless you actively ranch and graze. Oh, yeah, it's incredible. I mean, in our place where what we consider the Chihuahuan Desert, there were only tall grasses. I mean, grasses that were at least five feet tall. These days, I share a picture on the Pasticultores Facebook where I'm standing, like last week, on grasses that are seven feet tall. And then I compare that to another picture on not too far property from mine. We were very blessed this year to get 12 inches of rain. That's a lot for us because our average is nine. Well, with those 12 inches, we grow a lot of grass, seven feet tall grass in certain places. And you compare that to land that is actually not far from mine on the same week, there's really nothing. I mean, still nothing growing. So it's not really the rain that you get, but what you do with that rain. Talk more about that. And also, can you talk to, well, two things that stand out. One is the cow is a machine. When you said that the first time, I was like, what, do you, what does he mean by that? The cow is a machine, just knowing whore hooves, saliva, poop. What was the other ones? Urine and... Urine and breathing and 
how that symbiotically plays with the grass growing and perhaps even the rain falling. That's fascinating. And two, just you're providing a different perspective on like cattle being good because I think in the mainstream, like you hear like, oh, cattle is taking up too much land and it's leading to deforestation, cattle's bad, but you're reframing in a way where you can see cows and animals, other animals working in symbiosis with nature to get it back to the state that it was 70, 80 years ago, which is very cool to see. Yeah. Go on. No, I know, I know. Our minds are just like getting crazy on these conversations. So the thing is that, for example, think about the, I mean, because I'm in a place where supposed to be a desert. Now we're converting that into beautiful lush grasslands. And think about that, all the benefits that it brings. We're not letting the, when it rains, you don't really see all this muddy water. You see clear water running across the ranch. I mean, when it rains, all the runoff, we infiltrate a lot of water, we recharge the aquifers, and the water that actually we are not able to infiltrate is clear water. It's just amazing. Just so beautiful to see. Because most places, when you see rains and there's no good skin in the soil, like no good cover, you see all this muddy water and this very destructive water, a lot of flooding. And then the temperature, we just recently measured the temperature. I mean, we're already in fall. There was a 40 degree Fahrenheit difference between where we have grass and where there was bare ground. Think about for the millions of acres or hectares across, for example, the whole Western US, where you have a lot of bare ground. What is it that doing with the climate? I mean, we're creating this big heat wave because it's almost 40 degrees above what it would be if you cover this all with grasses. I mean, grasses are just beautiful plants to insulate the soil from high temps. For example, when it snows and you have grass, good grass cover, you will see that the snow, I mean, let's go to the other end. You will see that the snow doesn't remain there for, I mean, in two, three days, you will not see snow. Why? Because the grasses help us keep the temperature very consistent year-round. Not only the, in summer, the temperatures are cooler in the soil, but in winter, the soil temps are warmer than when you have bare ground. So it's so beautiful that it works. And we can add into on top of that, the wildlife. I mean, we've been working with these bird organizations for 10, 15 years, and they're getting really excellent results. Birds are coming from Southern Canada and Northern US that they migrate and pass most of the time on the Mexican side. And they are protected first and they are fed as well grasslands. So it's this really very nice interaction and benefits that are brought by growing better grasses, more grasses. Can you talk a bit more about the dung beetle and cow pie effect that you were I'm saying earlier, you were talking and then I was just thinking like, okay, I sort of understand the dung beetles, they break down the cow pies, the cow poop. And then what does that do to the soil to make the grass grow? And does it have other impacts on weather patterns? Like, does it impact the rain? Does it impact like fog? Talk more about that. Let's start talking about the water cycle. Yes, please. You may or may not know this, but 100% of the rainfall that we get, 60% comes from the sea. And we are responsible inland to create or promote 
the other 40% through vegetation. So as we desertify more land, we're losing that 40%. That's a problem. I mean, I've been in many, lately in many West U.S. Western states, and they're in a drought. But when you go and visit those places, the grasses are really very sick. I mean, very shallow roots, very small solar panels. When I say when the grasses have no solar panels, what I mean is they have a lot of stems and very little leaves. With this kind of management, that ratio of leaf to stem actually improve the panel. The same kind of grass on the same spot will have many more leaves than stems or just leaves and a big canopy. Why is that? Because as you improve the quality of the grasses, and most important, as you grow the population of microbiology in the soil, which we call microherd, that microherd is going to keep start asking the grass, hey, we need more feet. I mean, we need more food here. We are more people down there. And the grass automatically is going to say, okay, let me actually get more leaves so we can capture more energy from soil and we can give you more food through exudates. So that's good for the cows because remember, the plants really do not have everything integrated like our tummies and microbiome in our stomachs. And they have to rely on the soil, on the microbiology. So why are we expecting to have great plants in poor soils? That really doesn't make sense to me. So our focus is always on how can we feed more microbiology by doing more photosynthesis, by having plants greener, longer year-round. So going back to the water cycle, what's going on there is the water cycle right now in most land is broken. I mean, more prairie environments is broken. Most northern Mexico, western U.S. is broken. Why? Because when it rains, I mean, the good water cycle is when it rains, it will infiltrate that water. How do you infiltrate that water? I mean, for thousands of years since the Egyptians, because they were great farmers, right? I mean, well, at least they were like the big barn for the Romans. We believe on tilling the land. I mean, oh, the land is compacted. Let's till the land with reaper or whatever. Well, now we know that really what really puts some air in the soil is the fungi. Is the fungi. Is that microbiology which creates these crumbles in the soil, like these aggregates. So these spaces. So when it rains and you have good microbiology, that rain is going to infiltrate. And instead of that moisture going back to the sky as just evaporating, it will go as an evapotranspiration through the plants. And then it will go up to the sky with microbiology, which we call area bacteria, and that would help condensate the clouds and it would rain again. So it's that really is, I think for us ranchers, that's the most important cycle we want to fix, the water cycle. Because it doesn't matter if I get nine inches per year. If I'm only infiltrating 20%, which is the average, I'm only getting only three inches. Help me understand this. Is tilling good or is tilling bad for the land? I'm sorry. Tilling is pretty bad for the land. Okay. Because <laughs> tilling is actually what we thought it was good until recently. But really tilling the land, you are actually killing. is like a earthquake for the microbiology. Because, you know, we thought that, yeah, we have to till the land to get some air. 
reality, the more you till, the more you get this all more compacted and more compacted and so on. Got it. Got it. And all that richness of the fungi and the microbiomes just then just dries up because then you're letting the water that was in the soil evaporate. And if you don't have water, then all of that like rich bacteria dies and then doesn't feed the plants. Exactly. And that's why it's one of the regen principles. Don't till the soil. Minimal disturbance of the soil. We're going to take a quick break so you can hear me talk more about the MCJ membership option. Hey folks, Ian here, a partner at MCJ Collective. Want to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have since then grown to 2,000 members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with differing backgrounds and perspectives. And while those perspectives are different, what we all share in common is a deep curiosity to learn and bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, nonprofits have been established, a bunch of hiring has been done, many early stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. So whether you've been in climate for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the members tab at the top. Thanks and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, let's get back to the show. Can we talk about the other regenerative ranching principles? We had a guest on recently who is a farmer that was doing regenerative agricultural practices, but with crops. And he'd mentioned, you know, crop rotation is so important. Uh, So I'd love to hear what the key principles are of regenerative ranching. If you see nature, it all comes from nature. I mean, if you see a grassland, a healthy grassland, it's always covered with grass. There's no bare spots. That's one of the first principles. Put skin in the soil. Don't let your soil be bare ground any time of the year. Think about very conventional farming. We only have green for four or five months, and the rest of the year, it's just bare ground, which is not good. And the other is animal integration, which is also happening in nature. You don't have really any environment on earth that doesn't have animals working on it. Diversity is another principle, very important principle, and we're trying to mimic not only the number of grasses that we are trying to grow, but also the animals that we're grazing. We want to promote more multi-species grazing. Can I ask, are there certain animals that are bad for the ranch? No, not really. Not really. Okay. I think all of them are good. As they say, it really is not the cow the problem, but is the how. How you manage the cow, it could be detrimental to your land or it could be a blessing to your land. It's all about how you manage the cow. That's why we call this as well knowledge ranching, because you really need knowledge to manage your property well. Maybe where my question was coming from is like, I think about invasive species. Like if maybe this is in the context of just farming, like they'll eat crops. Do you run into any situations like that where there's an unwanted species that's eating the grass or maybe because you just let nature balance itself out that you don't get any of those unnecessary? That's a really wonderful question. I was with some ranchers lately and they were invaded by grasshoppers. And they were pretty frustrated, you know, because grasshoppers were eating all the grass. So every time we see something happening, we got to stop and think about what's going on but also not on the negative side. Because remember, nature is always trying to help us one way or the other. 
So if nature in those particular areas, if nature knows that you have very weak grasses that will not survive, that they're dying because whatever management we're applying, nature is saying, okay, I'm going to send you some of these microherd, which are the grasshoppers. They're going to eat that grass. And while they're eating that grass, they're going to play the same role as cows. They're going to poop and they're going to die there. So nature is trying really to put more fertility instead of having this wasting of seed grasses. So how about the weeds? That's also a very interesting topic because when we see weeds, we are trying to kill the weeds. But in our context, where you have actually a little background, I'm telling ranchers, if you see a lot of weeds next year, you got to do a party. you got to celebrate. <laughs> because you cannot go from bare ground to lush perennial grasses. You have to follow the natural succession. And the natural succession is from bare ground to weeds to annual grasses and then to perennial grasses and then to better perennial grasses and so on. So we do celebrate having more weeds because remember the soil, I mean, the weeds are there to actually fix something that is the soil is actually not having. That's why weeds and forbs are really always good as a medicine. And through a lot of trials, through a lot of centuries or millennia, we know as humans or the non-traditional medicine, they use all kinds of force and weeds to cure sickness because we found out that they have certain concentration of minerals every wheat. So if you see certain weeds, just by looking at the kind of wheat you're having, you know what it's lacking in your soil and the wheat is trying to fix that. The wheat is preparing the soil for better things to happen. So killing the weeds really doesn't make any sense. Now, you also mentioned about invasive cacti, cactus, or woody plants, we just did not care about that. We're not trying to kill anything. Remember, every morning we say, how can we promote more life? What's been happening in the ranch in the last years is as grasses are really taking over, what you have is nature saying, well, you don't really need these woody plants anymore or even these nauseous weeds, which may kill the cows. So grasses are really displacing all that. And I think we do believe that it may be that we're retaining more moisture with the grasses or we have a more balanced fungi to bacteria ratio. But the point is that we're killing a lot of those woody plants just by focusing on what we want, which is growing more grass. We did not use any mechanical, we did not use any chemical to kill any invasive species. I mean, they are there for a reason. And they reflect their management. It's interesting to think about what we see is like, well, this is an invasive species. We have to kill it. We have to get rid of it. It's bad for the land. Whereas actually, it's good, but it's more of a longer term horizon versus exactly. we exactly. have to get rid of it now. That leads me to a question of how do ranchers make money? I know it's a very generalized statement, but from what I can intuit, ranching and livestock is a cash flow business and you are raising cattle to sell it. And so the margins are thin and a lot of these regenerative practices take time. And I wonder how ranchers balance that duality of like, it takes a long time to do regenerative agriculture and do it well before the ecosystem kind of works like clockwork with 
well, we need to make money and we need to raise these cattle and be able to sell them and sell them fast. Is that like an incorrect way of thinking about the ecosystem? No, no, no. You tell me. <laughs> no, no, I think it's fine. It's just that ranchers are not doing well for the simple reason that their costs are very high. Those costs are actually even worse this year because of all the turmoil that is happening worldwide. All the hay and all the proteins and grains are going to the sky. So our first goal... What do you mean by that, that the grains are going to the sky? Yeah, I mean, they are just pretty high in prices. I mean, all the hay, all the grains, all that, they're really much more costly. All the inputs, in simple words. So our first objective for the ranchers is to lower the costs. And for them to lower the cost, they actually need to grow more grass because the easier and more less expensive way to put a pound on a cow or a calf is on native rangeland. Once you start bringing things from the outside, I mean, you got to pay for that. So how we make money? Well, first of all, is not spending money. How we can make more money? Let's not spend more money. <laughs> That's why we strive for the ranchers to be a low-cost producers. Now, growing more and better grasses. And then eventually, if you're growing more grasses, you can increase your numbers. You can increase because your land is the one that is going to tell you, hey, Alejandro, we need more cows because we're growing more grasses. I remember that grasses have a life cycle as well. I mean, you got to use them at some point. Otherwise, they're going to start decaying. And when I say decaying is when they get oxidized, when they turn into gray or black. Well, then at that point, not yellow. Yellow is still fine because it has some nutrition in it. So we had to really be very observant and making sure that we're going to graze that paddock or that pasture. Obviously, as you improve the soil fertility, then the grass are going to stay in good health longer. But at the beginning, those life cycles are going to be pretty short because they're sick. I mean, six soils means six grasses. And a grass that is a perennial grass, which never dies, it may behave like an annual grass because they're so sick that the green season is very short. So that's another goal that we have for ranchers. So first of all, is lower the cost. So when they sell, even in the commodity market, they can keep more money because they're not spending that much money anymore. The second one is to increase the numbers based on how they increase the... Because remember, cows are a way to sell your grass. Say more on that. Cows or sheep or goats or whatever you're selling, they're a byproduct of the grass at the end of the day. Many people say, okay, yeah, I want to buy the most vegetarian product. The most vegetarian product on the stores is the grass-fed meat, really, because cows only eat vegetables, but in a more biodigestible way, you're going to eat that stuff. So... I mean, it's up to ranchers because, you know, some ranchers really want to keep on the production. They don't want to get into direct marketing. But that would be another option. I mean, once you get good soils and good grasses and good cows, you can actually start getting more into the direct marketing. And then that's going to add more margin into your sales, better prices. The other thing that sometimes we forget is to adapt for cattle or land and tour management. This is not like, oh, yeah, I'm going to buy a bull from Kansas and bring it to the Chihuahua Desert. Why I don't want to do that? Because I don't want to create this artificial environment for my animals. 
So what many ranchers we are doing that we're practicing this holistic regenerative management, we're raising our own herd. I mean, because cows learn what plants, cows are really selective in terms of, oh, I need this plant because I don't feel good. They are great pharmacists. I mean, they're great chemicals. They can select this and this and this. That knowledge is building into their epigenetics. So even when they are born, and I think that applies to us, really, let me tell you. When they are born, they already have some knowledge and wisdom of what is good for them and what is not good for them and what do you eat. It's pretty impressive. I mean, that part is really impressive. And we're trying to highlight that to the ranchers. I mean, stop selling your heifers, like the female, young females, because they're like your gold mine. I mean, they have all that wisdom and all those epigenetics that will pass on. Each of us have to develop their own herd that will be adapted to their own environment. And that's putting together your genetics. I mean, you improve in two ways. You can improve in your genetics, more adapted to environment, and you will improve on the quality and quantity of your grasses. And that's where you're going to start having a much more fun because then you're going to start building consistency in your operation. We're getting a little bit deep into this, but... <laughs> I love it. I love important. it. <laughs> I didn't expect this conversation to even touch on epigenetics of grasses and animals. So that's fascinating. It sounds like for ranchers, if they're just thinking about the longevity of their ranch for the next hundred years, it's really focusing on enriching the soil and enriching the grass and thinking about the types of animals that then feed on that grass and having that cycle evolve naturally. Like a friend of mine says, are you going to be able to grow papayas in Canada? Well, I don't think so. So you better have the kind of genetics that can thrive in your ranch. So for example, my ranch is very limited in forage and so on. I'm not pretending on having milking cows there because I need to feed them. But whatever animal you have and you buy, then that's just the beginning of the journey. It's not like a magic bullet that, oh yeah, I bought this animal and it's going to hit the ground running. No, it's just the beginning of you trying to select for animals that thrive. So at times, you're with your herd and you're the shepherd because your animals really know that you're going to take them to greener pastures and they trust you. They follow you. That's pretty amazing. Is this cow talk that you do with your animals is pretty amazing. Like we always tell ranchers, you need to have happy cows. You always try to have happy cows around. But there are other times where you're trying to trim the bottom and then you have to act as the predator. Cows are struggling, keeping up with the herd because they're thin, they're losing body condition. They have some issue. Then you take those cows and then put it in a large pasture so they recover and then you sell them. So you always trim in the bottom, trying to keep your herd. I mean, trying to mimic nature pretty much. So at times you're wearing the hat of the shepherd. and Sometimes you're wearing the hat of the predator. I know that we have limited time. You and I both need to go pick up our daughters from their after school activities soon. I wanted to ask you this question because I feel like you're super well positioned to give a perspective. So you live in Texas right now. You live in El Paso, Texas. Las Damas Ranch is in Mexico and you have to drive the four and a half hours from El Paso to the Chihuahuan Desert to get to the ranch. I'm curious from a policy perspective, if you see any differences in American 
ranching versus Mexican ranching and what are the policies that are created by the two different governments and their impacts on ranching practices? What we may consider like a disadvantage in Mexico has been a blessing because in Mexico, really, we don't have subsidies. We don't have water rights, so we don't have irrigation. So that really has forces to be a good grazers on native rangeland. In the U.S., at times, you know, subsidies are actually stopping people from getting more innovation. And Can you talk forced. more about what subsidies are for people that are not familiar? For example, if you're hit by a drought, you may get some support from the government. If there's some natural event, also you may get some support. In Mexico, you don't really get any of that. And also, for example, water rights allow a lot of ranchers to have these pivots and irrigation. And they get used to do their grazing on these pivots. And then they forget about the rangeland. And running cows on pivots, that means that you got to seed them, you got to fertilize them, you got to irrigate them. So now the cost is just pretty high cost to producing beef on those land. Can you talk about what pivots are? I'm not familiar. It's irrigated land that they have because when the snow melts, then you have some water rights to that in the spring, and then they are able to open up some land to irrigate that land. That really gives them some certainty that they will have that green grass. Yeah, the predictability that, that it's always going to be there. Exactly. But then that kind of stop you from thinking, how can I go year-round without any irrigation? So, I mean, some branches really have moved in the U.S., have moved away from irrigation. Because I think the greatest potential is actually on rangeland. I mean, restoring rangeland and then your costs are going to be pretty low and so on. But that's one of the main differences. Other than that, I think we're pretty common. I mean, ranchers in the U.S. and ranchers in Mexico, they have a lot of commonality, a lot of common things, very common beliefs. And it's a great community, actually, a lot of traditions. Tell us more about that. We are hardworking people. Most of the ranchers have strong beliefs. You have to have a lot of faith because you're kind of now just waiting for nature or for rains to come and very family-oriented as well. And I mean, these values haven't really changed for many, many years. I love that. When you turn 70, I wonder what your daughter's walls are going to be on the ranch because this is something that's been passed down from generation to generation. Yes, that's right. That's our idea to actually get the place better than how you get it. We know that if we actually can build in more carbon into the soil, the likelihood of the ranch to be sustainable will be much greater. As you start losing carbon, like vegetation, all that stuff, then that's going to bring just poverty and migration and things like that. To ask one more question before we take off and pick up our kids, we always like to end this show on a note of optimism. And so, Alejandro, what are a few things that really keep you optimistic as you look forward to the next 100 years in ranching practices? This is really very excited what we do because, to be honest with you, I think we are the heroes of today. Think about all the issues we are having right now, issues with nutrition. I mean, we can provide really very high nutrient food because the nutrient density of, for example, meat ties back to the plants that the cows eat. 
And what you're talking about are cows or sheep eating more than 50 different plants. All those phytochemicals are going to be reflected in the meat. Wildlife, a lot of wildlife has been gone because of the loss of the environment where they used to live, although the loss of habitat. We are creating those habitats for all that wildlife, which is beautiful as well. And water is an issue. Flooding is an issue. We can control the flooding. Climate change, I mean, we're a really big one there because as we cover more soil with grasslands, it's like the study that they did in Russia with this permafrost. In northern Russia, all the permafrost is melting. And it's, it's a lot of forest. There's a lot of forest there. So what's going on? They concluded that really what is missing there is grasslands because grasslands really play a much more important role insulating soil than forests. I would like to see more forests anywhere you go, like in the Western US or Northern Mexico and so on, with grass underneath. So we not only need these grazing animals on grasslands, we also need these grazing animals on forests as well. I mean, there's so many benefits, just incredible. Really restoring the communities that, when you go to little towns, they're pretty much some of them look like a ghost towns. There have been people struggling to get their kids to schools because they're even close to the schools. So we need really these strong economies of tangible products. How much more tangible than, than producing food? So I'm pretty optimistic. I mean, we know how to do it. We're trying to educate more ranchers. We're trying to get more ranchers on board. A lot of young people are very excited about this because at times some people, some young people and not so young people, Tell us, this is a message of hope. We're lacking that kind of messages nowadays. And this is not a high-tech thing. I mean, I'm from technology, and this is more a biology solution than technology. If the listeners, and myself included in that, want to learn more about regenerative ranching, what are some good resources that you can point us to? Yeah, we'll just search. Search about regenerative agriculture, regenerative ranching. Rational grazing, holistic management, Severin Institute. There's plenty of information. Also, obviously, one of the greatest videos is Kiss the Ground. That's actually that Kiss the Ground documentary has been changing a lot of people, has been brought a lot of hope for a lot of people. Alejandro, thank you so much for spending time with us and teaching us about regenerative ranching, as well as your perspective on the future of the industry. And something that I think is really cool hearing you speak is, I feel like I'm inundated with a lot of data every day, the IPCC report, pitch decks, where everyone's trying to make a case for the importance of climate action through data. And the fact that you came with just these very visceral stories and helping me see, helping us see the importance of a cow, just from looking at the different parts of the cow and to talk about the role of a grasshopper on a piece of land, that's super powerful. So thank you for bringing the storytelling piece to this conversation. I really appreciate you very much. Thank you. No, thank you very much for having me here. And it was great to share with you. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. To do this, we focus on three main pillars. Content, like this podcast and our weekly newsletter. Capital, to fund companies that are working to address climate change. And our member community, 
to bring people together, as Yen described earlier. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at www.mcjcollective.com. And if you have guest suggestions, feel free to let us know on Twitter at MCJPod. Thanks, and see you next episode. Thanks.